All right, we're going through the uh, going through the Gospel of John. We're John chapter ten, and we're going to pick up where we left off last week. Last week, I didn't have enough time to say all the things I wanted to say, so I left some of them for for this week uh, on the subject of the Good Shepherd. Now, uh, just just to set the set the background here, John chapter nine and John chapter ten. The backdrop is Jesus has just healed a man who was who was uh, born blind. And there's a lot of discussions that ensue after this great miracle. He tells the parable of the good shepherd to the young man and the other people who were there, who, who witnessed the miracle, the, the after effects of the miracle. And, and then Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. And last lesson we talked about the significance of that, that Jesus embodies the, the best characteristics of all the good shepherds that we see in the scripture. We talked about several of them, Abel, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, and David. And also he fulfilled several prophecies that, that talk specifically about a good shepherd who would come. Uh, Psalm 23, some would consider that to be tying in with Jesus. He's he, A good shepherd who t- protects and takes care of the flock, even in the valley of the shadow of death. That, uh, that, that the flock can feel comforted and protected. Amen. And in Micah, Micah it says that, that the shepherd would be born in Bethlehem. His origins would be from eternity. In Psalm 2 it says he would shepherd the nations with a rod of iron, which as we talked about that, the significance of that, how that was understood in the past. Uh, Jesus mentioned the prophecy of Zechariah 13, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, that he was, he was the shepherd who was prophesied by Zechariah. And, of course, the, the big prophecy in Ezekiel 34 and Ezekiel 37 that talks where God is disgusted with the bad shepherds who are leading his people and who are abusing his people. And he says, I will raise up one shepherd who will lead them, and he refers to this as being David. He says, I will raise him up. So uh, it's another prophecy about the resurrection. And he would rule over all of God's flock forever. So this is a wonderful prophecy. So we see in Jesus in the Old Testament, we see four strands of prophecy coming together. That Jesus is the prophet, the priest, the king, and the shepherd. He is the combination. He fulfills all of them. And it said all of them about all these, all these different roles that we see in the Old Testament that God would raise up this person, which, of course, he did in the resurrection. So it's a fulfillment. This is a whole strand of prophecy talking about the shepherd. And each of these are different roles. The prophet is someone who proclaims the word of God and calls people to repent. He says, this is what God says. This is what you need to do. The priest offers the sacrifice to God on behalf of the people. He offers prayers and incense and sacrifice on behalf of the people. Uh, the king rules over the people as, a, as, a, as an extension of God. He rules over God's people. And then the shepherd. This is a beautiful picture of the shepherd. The shepherd, this is a shepherd who loves the sheep and who lays down his life for the sheep. So we see all in these four strands that all come together in Jesus, we see important aspects of, of who he was and how God had had explained this through the prophecies and examples hundreds of years beforehand. So it's a beautiful aspect of understanding who Jesus is and what his mission was. What 
I wanted to talk about last week in connection with that is this whole idea of the good shepherd is it's wonderful that Jesus is the good shepherd, but he also calls men in the church to be good shepherds too. And this this story about the shepherd, the sheep, the wolf, you know, this this whole this whole picture, this whole image is one that that Paul picks up on, and, and I think Peter does as well. So I want to talk about that. And this, what I want to talk about next in connection with the, the, the image of the Good Shepherd, I think it really ties in especially for men. For men who are fathers, for men who are husbands, and for men who uh, may someday be in leadership roles, spiritual roles of leadership in the church. It applies to women as well as I think all parents uh, mothers, uh, anybody who is looking out for somebody else spiritually. So uh, the men who are entrusted with leading the church in the New Testament, there are three terms that are used there. One of them is bishop or overseer. Literally, it means, oh, literally, the word bishop just means overseer, somebody who's looking out over what's going on. Elder. And the word, as you would imagine, just means an old person. So the word elder can just mean some old guy, or it can mean uh, one of the older men in the church who has responsibility. So the guy, the idea is that the people who are, you want mature men leading the church, and that's why they're called elders. And then the third one is shepherd. And so the, it's, it's uh, overseer or bishop. Elder and shepherd. There are three terms that are used, and all they're all talking about the same person, the same role, but they're talking about it in, in a different sense in the Bible. And you'll see some in some passages, you'll see where two or even all three of these terms are used as, as applied to the same person. Now, the danger, one of the dangers in, in the church today that I see is a tendency, and it's, it's true in every age, a tendency to want to copy the successful institutions of the world. So uh, what does that look like during the Roman Empire? Let's set ourselves up like the Roman Empire. So we have Caesar who's in Rome, and then we have his people who are under him. So you know where that road goes. Or today, what are the, what are the you know, before we throw stones at any other groups that are out there, but to, let's look at what are the what are the worldly examples, the successful institutions that churches will try to copy today in their leadership? Uh, one of them is, is the corporation. This is the big, the big institution in, in, in America and in the West is the corporation. So you have the board of directors and you have the president of the company. And uh, I got put recently on the board of directors of a college, never been on a board of directors in my life, have no idea. I thought the board of directors ran everything. And, and they explained to me, no, uh, my friend Finney Caravilla, who asked me to be on the board of directors of, of Sattler College, he said, he said, he told me, he said, I was on the board of directors of several organizations before someone finally explained to me what the board of directors does. And here's the way it works. So what the board of directors, the most important thing that they do is they hire and fire the president. And then the president runs the organization, runs the company. So I didn't know that, but that's that's he said that's what it that's the way it works, is that board of directors doesn't really run the company, they just hire the president. So a church, if they want to use that example, 
let's say the elders think of themselves as the board of directors, they'll look around, they'll try to find one person who will then run the church, and just, like a, just like a corporation. And so that's one model that you could use if you wanted to copy a corporation. Another one will be following an army where, you know, you have the uh, you salute, the, the, there's the one guy in top, and everybody just does what they're told. Your job in the army is don't question, do exactly what you're told. So uh, that would be another. Or, or the other one is uh, we live in a democracy. Democracy is considered such a wonderful thing. How did the world ever get by without democracy for all these hundreds of years? So... Uh, will copy the government. And so in some ages, you'd have a king who, who, who runs the group or a one-man leader, a dictator of some sort. Or the other, you go to the other extreme, it's a please-the-people democracy. Let's all vote on what we want the Bible to mean. Let's all vote on how we get to do things. 51% thinks that gay marriage is okay. Okay, then it must be okay because, because after all, we're a democracy. So... That's the way we do things. So you, can, so you can have everything from a dictatorship to a democracy to the board of directors. It depends on which institution in the world you're, you're trying to copy in your own age, and there are different ones uh, in, in each age. So the challenge for us is to forget them all. Who cares what the world is doing? Let's look at what the Bible says and how the Bible sets it up. If the Bible says that men lead the church, then men lead the church, regardless of what's going on in society around us. If it says that older men lead the church, then that's the way we do it. So uh, um, the biblical picture here is that men who are called elders, shepherds, bishops, overseers, are entrusted with the responsibility of overseeing and leading the church. And I want to talk, I want to go to Acts chapter 20. This is... Uh, to me, a fascinating uh, passage in Scripture, Acts chapter 20, where Paul, Paul's giving his farewell to the Ephesian elders. And uh, there's a lot in this passage right here. So Paul is, is going by Ephesus. Paul had spent uh, three years teaching intensively in Ephesus, which is in western Turkey, and he's passing by Ephesus, and he calls for the Ephesian elders. And this is going to be the last time they ever see him. So this is his farewell address. And a lot of times, a farewell address, someone's last message. I think of George Washington's farewell address or Moses' farewell address in Deuteronomy. I want to pay attention. This is the, he, he's like passing the baton off to the next generation. And so uh, it, it's fascinating to me what Paul says. I want to read in verses, starting in verse 25, Acts chapter 20 and verse 25. So he's talking to the elders from the church in Ephesus. This is Paul. He says, Indeed, now I know that you all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God will see my face no more. Therefore I testify to you this day I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves 
will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone day and night with tears. Now, there's so many things I, I notice in this passage. I don't know what jumped out at you, but one thing was, he says, among whom I've gone preaching the kingdom of God. The message that he preached was the kingdom of God. It wasn't just personal salvation. He's preaching the message of the kingdom of God. That's what we should be preaching as well. We also see that the words uh, overseer and shepherd are being applied to the same, the same group of people here. So the terms are, are somewhat interchangeable. Uh, different, different aspects of the same person. He says the Holy Spirit had called these men to be shepherds of the flock. And he uses, you probably notice, the same kind of terminology that Jesus used. He's talking about shepherds, flock, and wolves here, just like in John chapter 10. And he warns them that savage wolves are coming who will not spare the flock. Now remember, Jesus had said that the good shepherd lays down his life. He doesn't run away when the wolves come. So obviously they can't be cowardly hirelings. They have to be willing to engage in battle when these people come. Now think about this. This is a church Paul was involved for three years in personally teaching and laying the foundation of this church. And he says, I warned you day and night with tears about the wolves and the false teachers who were going to come in. And he said, even among your own number. So he's talking, you can imagine, he's got the elders of the church laid out. He said, some of you men, some of your own fellow shepherds, are going to be rising up and leading people away. Now, how many churches do you think ever ever uh, preach a message like this? Watch out. You're going to be led astray. People are going to come in and pull people away. And don't, don't trust all of the elders here because some of them are going to lead people away. I've never heard, I've never been in a church where someone would teach a message like this. This is what Paul says. He says, after I go, things are going to get bad. I mean, most people have the attitude, well, well, we're God's church, so nothing bad can happen to here. We've got these wonderful men as leaders, so all we have to do is put it in cruise control and follow these wonderful men that God has put up in front of us and just trust that they're leading us because the Holy Spirit is leading them. Paul didn't say that. He said, Holy Spirit put you in there, but some of you are going to go, are going to go south. Some of you are going to go wrong. Some of you are going to follow Satan and watch out. I warned you about this day and night with tears that this was going to happen. People think if they do a great job building a church that bad things can't happen. Well, that's not the case. Paul's attitude was this is a war. We're in a war zone and things are going to go south here uh, is after I leave. So the, the whole attitude, well, it certainly can't happen here, can't happen in our church. Paul knew it would happen. He didn't say if it happens. He's talking about when it happens. 
So, I mean, that's what, what I notice in this passage, that, uh, that that's Paul's attitude. He's really concerned that some of the shepherds are going to be leading people astray, and he's calling the other shepherds to wake up and be prepared when it happens to confront this sort of thing. I want to turn and look at uh, another passage in, in 1 Peter. This is what Peter has to say when he's talking to elders. In, in 1 Peter chapter 5, I'm going to read verses 1 to 7. It's all about the, the concept of, of the importance of good shepherds in the church. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 1, The elders who are among you, I exhort... I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, also partaker in the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears... You'll receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, be hum- therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your cares upon him. For he cares for you. So, here we see the term elder, overseer, or bishop, and shepherd. All three of the terms are used. Obviously, they're all referring to the same, same group of people there. The elders are called to uh, oversee and to shepherd the flock. Uh, the elders, it says, don't not lording it over people. They're not the bosses of the church. They are the leaders of the church, and you're to lead by example. Come follow me. Now, they have to exert discipline in the church when it's necessary and they have to correct and rebuke and and, and exhort when it's necessary but he says that their leadership is not lording it over people but they're leading by example they're showing the flock the way to go like jesus did jesus jesus that says my sheep follow me they go after him they follow they follow the way that he goes and the younger, those younger in the church are called to be submissive to their elders. And everybody is reminded of what it says in Proverbs 3.34. God opposes the proud but gives grace. He gives his grace or his favor to those who are humble. So everybody's called to be humble, including the leaders of the church. And then the description of here, it says, when the chief shepherd appears, uh, all the other shepherds are going to have to give an account. So the idea is that there's a chief, you're, you're a shepherd, but there's a chief shepherd. Jesus is the chief shepherd. He's the one you're going to have to give an account to for your shepherding. Uh, Jesus is the ultimate shepherd that all the other shepherds have to follow and give answer to. So, uh, so some of the things that I take away from, from this, from what Peter says and what Paul says here, the primary responsibility of a shepherd is to be is to, is to please the chief shepherd is to give an account to the chief shepherd he is the shepherd he is the one shepherd and those who are given responsibility as shepherds within within a uh, within within the church 
are answerable to him. So that's the first thing is, is uh, we have to please the chief shepherd. And I think about the example, to me, of Joseph in Genesis 37. It says that Joseph, he was living a family of shepherds. Two of his brothers were doing something corrupt in their shepherding. And he goes and he gives a good report to his father. He's more concerned with pleasing his father than he is pleasing his brothers and his fellow shepherds. And, and it was, as a result, two things happen. One is he's, he's his favorite, father, favorite of his father, and the other one is his brothers hate him because he blew the whistle on them. He told the truth on them. Um, he's more concerned about pleasing his father than he is about pleasing his brother shepherds. And the same thing happened with Joseph as happened with Jesus. Jesus exposed the sin of the religious leaders, he exposed their greed and their selfishness and their corruption on the inside and uh, their, their legalism. He exposed the sin of the shepherds in his day and he was crucified for it. So this is the track record. If you expose the sin of the other shepherds, you may get put into, sold into slavery or you may get crucified. So what do you think is going to happen to us if we step up and do the same thing, and speak the truth to shepherds who are involved in sin. Um, the, the challenge in the shepherds is not to, to stay with a pack and not make waves. I was told once by, by an elder many years ago, he says, you know, he says the, the eldership in, in the church is like it's an eldership, and he put the emphasis on the last word. He says, we're all in the same ship together. So, if we happen to go and we take a vote on it as an eldership and we decide to go in a way that's different than what I thought, I have to submit myself to the eldership because we're all in the same ship. And, of course, we don't want to go down with the ship. So the, the emphasis was on the ship part of the eldership rather than the elder part of the eldership. So uh, I thought, you know, there may, be, there may be a point to that where you don't want to be a maverick, you don't want to make waves. However... Um, is that is that the attitude that Joseph had? I don't want to make waves. I want to just kind of go along with everybody else. If somebody's doing something wrong, is is that the attitude that Paul had? He tells him, "Look, guys, just get along with each other and don't make waves." Okay, if you see something wrong among your fellow brothers, just get along with each other and don't cause trouble. That's not what he said. That's not what they said. The good the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And the good shepherd, if there's another shepherd who's doing something wrong, blows the whistle on him because he has to give account to the chief shepherd. That's what it, that's what it means to be a good shepherd. <clears throat> it's not about staying with a pack, not rocking the boat, or being a company man to be, to be a, a good shepherd of God. The good shepherd has to be more concerned also about the sheep than about his own comfort or safety, or reputation. He's got to lay down his life for the sheep. And that's what David said that he did. He said, when a wolf, when a lion or a bear came after the sheep, he said, I went out after it, struck it, delivered the lamb from its mouth, and when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard, struck it, and killed it. 1 Samuel 17, verses 34 and 35. That's a good shepherd. A good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, 
He's more concerned about the sheep than he is about himself. So let's keep those two things in mind. I've watched recently, I was raised Roman Catholic, and I've watched recently with a combination of fascination and horror at some of the horrible things that have been exposed in the Catholic Church. Um, there were, you know, and it, it's, in, it's in the news and uh, uh, the, you know, the, the more conservative Catholic uh, websites will cover it more than, than other, other groups which will tend to suppress this. And, and there are some very good and noble people that I've seen here. They're, you know, in the Catholic Church, they call their leaders bishops. And um, there, were, there, there have been a few, a very few of them who've seen corruption going on among their fellow bishops who were covering up things that they knew were wrong and who finally said, I can't take this anymore. I'm near the end of my life. I'm going to have to give an account to God. I'm going to blow the whistle and go into hiding if I have to for fear of my life to expose financial corruption, to expose sexual corruption in the church. And uh, it's been a time I've seen, I've seen, you know, uh, many bishops just kind of keep their mouth shut and watch and watch and look around to see that uh, everything's okay. The money's still coming in. They still have their comfortable place to live and just not rock the boat. And other, a very few people have stood up and said, look, I have, to, I have to be looking out for the sheep here. That's the only reason I was put into this job as a shepherd, is to look out for the sheep. So uh, in, in the Catholic Church, some of the abuses that are going on there, uh, you know, obviously this is uh, Catholic Church in, in, the, in the West. They, they uh, require celibacy among the, the priesthood. And uh, there's a problem with homosexuality. Uh, where uh, men have been not only involved in homosexuality in, in the Catholic priesthood, but they have been uh, abusing young boys and, and young seminarians, people who want young men who want to go into the priesthood, that there are bishops and cardinals and priests who've been abusing these people, uh, getting involved in, in, in horrendous homosexual sexual sin. And, uh, okay, that... I can understand, believe it or not, I can understand how things like that could happen. The thing that is hard for me to understand is because there, there are always wicked people that are out there, they're everywhere. This is this is you know, this is just life. There, there are bad people out there who get into religious positions. The thing that I don't understand, it's hard for me to understand, is how when the sin comes into the light. And the bishop is made aware. You have a priest who is sodomizing altar boys and seminarians. Why? That priest is not called on the carpet and, and exposed and put out of the ministry on the spot. What was going on was they cover it up. They move him from one parish to the next to the next. They move these people around and and. This is what's caused the real problem right now in the Catholic Church. Not just that there were abuses that were going on, financial abuses and sexual abuses, but the fact that the leaders of the church going right to the top knew about these things and were covering it up. Why would they do something like that? Why would they cover it up? Um, 
I think there, there's a number of reasons. And, and, you know, we look at the Catholic Church doing this, but I've seen the same thing, honestly, in non-Catholic churches and Protestant churches. I've seen similar things going on where there's people, leaders are involved in financial corruption and they hide it. They move them from one place to the other or some type of abuse is going on and they just move the person around and, and just, just cover it up, sweep it under the rug, pretend like nothing's going on. You know, why, why, do, why do shepherds do this? I think the reason that they do this is because they're more concerned with the other shepherds that can relate to the other shepherds more than they are to the chief shepherd or to the flock. That the first responsibility is to the others that are like them. In the Catholic Church, the fellow priests, the priests are looking after the other priests. Or the ministers in Protestant churches are looking after the other ministers. Sometimes they'll think, well, wow, this guy... He's, he's good at converting people. He's a great speaker. You know, he, he, he's bringing in a lot of money. Whatever it is, there's something that he's doing that they think uh, makes it valuable for their and what they're doing. We maybe we've, we've invested a lot in this person and to kick them out of the ministry after years of investment and training. But it's not looking out. It's looking out for the other shepherds and it's not looking out for the sheep. The Bible is very clear. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, 19-20, says, he says, Don't receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all, that the rest also may fear. This is what the churches should have been doing all the way along. It's like not covering up the sin is that, you don't just take it on on a say-so of one person, but if the evidence is there from multiple witnesses, you publicly rebuke the person who's involved in the sin. Okay, why don't people do that? They don't want to embarrass somebody. Maybe they're afraid of, of, a, of a defamation of character lawsuit or something like that. Or they don't want the image of the church to look bad. So let's kind, of, let's kind of push it under the rug and push it out of the way rather than doing what the Bible said. So no, you need, to, you need to rebuke the person publicly so that everybody else will get the message, if I do this, I'm going to be publicly rebuked just like they were, that we don't play favorites with leaders in the church. Okay? Ezekiel 34, we talked about that passage last time. It made it clear that there were many bad shepherds in Israel. And that God was very upset about that. The shepherds who were abusing the sheep. And, and God talks about what it, what it means to be a good shepherd. And he's very upset about that. And he's going to call those shepherds to account. So... Uh, I think for those who want to be, who want to be shepherds, and, and we need... We need so many men who aspire to be shepherds in, in one way or another as fathers, as, as husbands, as, as elders and, and, and bishops in the church. Um, it's, it's very simple. Number one, your number one job is to please the chief, chief shepherd. It's not, not to make the other shepherds happy. Okay? They may not like what you have to say, but you don't have to please them. You have to give an account to the chief shepherd. The other thing is be on the lookout. Paul didn't say if the wolf comes. He said when the wolf comes. It's coming. And be prepared. Be on the lookout. An overseer is constantly scanning the horizon looking for the wolf. That's his job. That's the shepherd's job. 
is to be on the lookout for the false teachers and the corrupt people and the people that have wicked agendas who are trying to creep into the church. The hireling runs away. The good shepherd lays down his life when he sees the wolf coming. Uh, the other thing is no, a good shepherd is going to know the condition of his flock. Uh, a good shepherd is going to make sure that the flock is well fed. And to me, that means that they're well fed from the word of God. That, that, that people understand the word of God. That they're personally reading and devoted to the word of God. That they're, they're, they're healthy and they're well fed. They have a good diet of clean water and pure grass. They're not eating garbage. Okay? And then I, what I would say to anyone who wants to be a shepherd, read Ezekiel 34 often. Meditate on it. This is the picture of a good shepherd, and this is the picture of a bad shepherd. One of the questions that, that I've gotten asked in connection with this is, uh, well, Chuck, how come your group doesn't have elders or bishops in it? And uh, I don't have a good answer for that question, but... Uh, uh, I think I, I guess my best my answer in the past was people said people said well Chuck why why aren't you uh, an elder and I would my my answer in the past was well in the first I don't meet the first qualification first qualification of an elder is you have to be old <laughs> unfortunately I'm 65 so that one has long since gone out the window I can't say that anymore I have to start looking at the other qualifications of being an elder but years ago I prayed God. I want to have the heart of a shepherd. I want to have the heart of an elder. But then the other part of the prayer was, but I don't necessarily want to be an elder, but I want to have the heart of an elder. But it's not like I don't want to be an elder, but that's the kind of person, that's the kind of character I want to be. And, 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 and uh, so, uh, but this is, this is the way that God wants the church to be shepherd. We have a small group, so it might seem like... like uh, it uh, might not seem necessary since we're this size, but at some point in time we may want to do that. But when we do, whoever, whoever the elders and shepherds are, this is the principles. This is the kind of men we need to look for, not just men who don't want to rock the boat. Okay? Let's continue. John chapter 10. We'll pick up where we left off from last week. In John chapter 10, I'm going to read verses 22 to 30. Now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you don't believe. The works I do in my Father's name, they bear witness to me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. As I said to you, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. There's a lot in there. Um, in, in that, that statement here. So elements of the story, Feast of the Dedication in Jerusalem. People are wondering, are you the Christ? Jesus says, I already told you that. I already answered that question. And my miracles also give testimony about that. 
And then he talks about his, he says, you don't listen to me because you're not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. You know, I, I know I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. The sheep were given to me by my father. And then uh, he says, I and the father are one. So there's, there's a, lot, a lot in this passage here and a lot that's taken out of context too. First question that I ask is probably one nobody else asked here is it says at verse 22 now it was the feast of the dedication in jerusalem and it was winter i'm thinking feast of the dedication i don't remember reading anything about a feast of the dedication in the old testament so uh i you know there's the pat there's the passover there's the tabernacles there's the day of atonement what is the feast of the dedication the feast of dedication what is it about and uh so i started doing a little bit of digging and, and wondered, and I'll ask you a question. Does it talk about the origin of the Feast of Dedication anywhere in the Bible? Yes? No? Yes and no? <laughs> Does it talk about the Feast of Dedication, origin of the Feast of Dedication anywhere in the Bible? And the answer to that question is, it depends on which Bible you have. That's the answer. It depends on which Bible you have. Let me give you an example. Okay, I grew up, I said I was raised Catholic, but uh, back in those days, if a Catholic and Protestant got married, you had to promise to raise the kids Catholic. So on my mother's side of my family, my, my, my mother's father was Catholic. He was Irish Catholic. My mother's mother's side was Protestant. So they were English and German Protestants. You get my mother's side of the family, there's Catholics and there's Protestants. Both, there are two different lines of the family. Uh, Alice and I uh, were, were over uh, this last week. We were um, uh, watching my uh, niece and nephew over at my sister's house. My sister and her husband were away. And uh, my sister and, and, and her husband have more library space in their home than we do. And so they have some things in there that we don't have in our home. One of the things is they have, they have two of the family Bibles from my family. So there's a Catholic Bible, which is from the 1950s, family Bible. And these, are the thick, these are the thick Bibles where they have the, you know, when were people born and little, pa little papers with family stuff is, is, yeah. in, is in there. So there's the Catholic Bible, but then there's this really thick Protestant Bible. It's from the 1870s. And there's all these interesting papers that were that were that were in there. So I opened up the, the Protestant Bible. This is going back, you know, obviously multiple generations of my family. And one of the things I noticed that in both the Catholic Family Bible and the Protestant Family Bible, both had the Book of First Maccabees in it. It both had both of them had what's called the Apocrypha. And I thought, well, that's interesting. That's really interesting. So. I knew that the original King James, original King James 1611, original King James had these additional books in it in the Old Testament. And here in the 1870s, okay, that's 250 years later, these books are still in the Bible. So what that tells me is sometime in the last 150 years, Somebody move the goalposts, okay? It's like, okay, I'm not pushing the book of Maccabees or the Apocrypha. Before this lesson, I don't think I'd ever read the book of Maccabees. So it's not like, 
If, if you want to consider part of the scriptures or you just think it's an interesting book, that's fine. But I'm just telling you, in my family, both sides, it was in the Bible up until the point where somebody took it out in the last hundred years or so. So uh, that's all I have to say. There, there's an argument on it for both sides. But it talks about this in 1 Maccabees. And basic, I'll give you a little, I, I read it actually, and I encourage you to read it. It's very interesting. Uh, I would say about 1 Maccabees that any, anyone who, you know, I almost never watch a movie. Anybody who likes action movies, I'd say the, the book of 1 Maccabees, in terms of action movies and graphic war scenes, has it over any modern movies, pretty much, okay? It's, it's very graphic. It's, uh, it's intense. So I'll give you a little quick overview here, okay? In, in the book of Daniel, I'll put more of this in the notes. In the book of Daniel, there are several places where it talks about what would happen after the time of Daniel. Daniel was the time of the, the Babylonian Empire and the Persian Empire. And, and in the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 2, uh, 7, 8, 10, it talks about what's going to happen in the future. And, of course, the liberal, the liberal theologians can't believe that Daniel was written when it was written because it accurately tells what's going to happen for several hundred years. So what it, what it ha talks about in several places, the, uh, uh, it says that after the time of the Persians, the Greek Empire will rise up. And in one of the accounts, it talks about the Greek Empire is a male goat that moves real fast, it has one horn on it that gets broken off and then four horns come out of it. Or it's a, it's a leopard, a real fast-moving animal with four wings, so this number four. And uh, so what happens, and that's exactly what happened was, after the Persian Empire, Alexander the Great swept through the east, goes all the way through, he conquers the Persians, Egypt, he goes all the way through India and uh, Pakistan, uh, and and uh, but he dies at the age of 32 as a young man. He dies at the age of 32, and there's no successor to take over. So what do they do? They break it into four pieces, just like just like in the vision and that Daniel had about the four horns that come out of the four wings. So he quickly takes over the, uh, the world. So he and, and he. The Jews basically acquiesce around the year uh, uh, 320, I think it's 332 B.C. The, the Jews surrender to Alexander. I, I, don't, I'm not, I don't even think there was a war that, that was taking place. The Jews just surrendered. And uh, so that part of the world was under the Greeks. And after Alexander, there were four, there, his, his huge empire was split up into four pieces. And one of the four pieces... One of them was, was based in Syria. One of them was based in, in Egypt. And uh, so there's, it, it, later on in the history of the Jews, this Greek culture that's based in Syria is ruling that part of the world. And a very wicked king called Antiochus or Antiochus, I'm not sure how it's pronounced, Epiphanes, four, and with the number four because there were several associated with it, he came up, and he was a madman. He was a crazy man. And he decided that he is going to wipe out all cultural practices of Judaism. Okay, to give you an idea, 
death penalty for circumcising your male child. Death penalty. Okay? Desecration of the temple, moving the idols into the temple and forcing Greek customs on the Jews. How bad was it if a, if a mother circumcised her child? And I mean, you can't hide this very well. It's easy to check it out. What they would do is they would kill the mother and the child and hang the baby around the mother's neck and display this in public. This is the kind of stuff that's going on. It talks about it in 1 Maccabees. So there were some <clears throat> heroic patriotic Jews who rose up among the Jewish people and said, we're not going to put up with this. And Mattathias, and, and he had several sons. One of them was Judas who was called Maccabeus, which we get the name of the book from. So they rose up, uh, uh, they fought, and they defeated a much larger army. Uh, and, and then they rededicated the temple. It's about 160 or 170 uh, AD. And so they had, uh, they had a celebration for the rededication of the temple for eight days. Okay, maybe you're thinking there's a connection here. This was in the winter time. The Jews, eight days on the 25th of a certain month. Okay? And this is known today as Hanukkah. And, and there's a, it doesn't talk about this in First Maccabees, but there's a, there's a uh, uh, I don't know it's, if it's a legend or it's true or not, but the story that the Jews explained to me was that um, they, they had only had enough of the uh, of, the, of, the, of the right kind of oil, the precious oil, to, to light the lamps in the temple for one day, but somehow miraculously it lasts for eight days. So this is also called the Festival of the Lights, Hanukkah, the menorah, the eight the candles. And so this is where Hanukkah comes from. I never knew that. I thought, show, show my ignorance, I thought as, as a kid growing up in New Jersey, okay, uh, didn't know any Muslims back then. All I, I, knew, I knew Protestants, Catholics, and Jewish people. And uh, I thought the Jews felt bad because they weren't celebrating Christmas, so they cooked up this other holiday so they could piggyback on, they could be doing something while the Christians are having all their fun on Christmas. But no, Jesus is celebrating Hanukkah back in John chapter 10, the Feast of the Dedication. That's Hanukkah. That's what it is. So they're, they're, they're celebrating the rededication of the temple. And uh, so anyway, just a little, little side story. But this is the problem as I get stuck and I get curious, I want to know, <laughs> what's that? And, and so that's where, that's where I end up. So, but so I learn a lot. And uh, so now I'm wondering, uh, what else is in the book of Maccabees? And why was it taken out of the scripture? So on we go uh, for that little, sorry for that little uh, uh, side trip there. Um, but book of Maccabees is in the old King James. Uh, it's in the Catholic Bibles, it's in, it's in the Orthodox Bibles, and uh, whether you consider it inspired or you consider it just a uh, good, good historical account, uh, it's, it's useful to read. And I put more, I put more in the notes than, than we can go into right now. Uh, Jesus made a statement here, which gets a lot of play. He said... My sheep hear my voice, I know them, they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Wow, isn't that good news? No one can snatch us out of his hand. That means 
I'm saved and I can't lose my salvation, doesn't it? Well, that's what, that's what the Calvinists teach. Is this once saved, always saved? No one can snatch us out of his hand? I mean, this is what I hear. It's, it's on the radio. It's in the, the popular Christian books. You can't lose your salvation. Once saved, always saved. No one can snatch us out of his hand. Question, is Jesus giving us an unconditional guarantee here? Is he? Will his sheep be saved regardless of how they live? Is that what he's saying here? Okay, first thing I want to do before jumping to any other scriptures is let's slow down and let's take what Jesus said in context here. Okay, let's take the whole thing. Because he talks about the shepherd and he also talks about the sheep. So who are the sheep he's talking about? How does Jesus describe them? It's, he says they are the ones who hear the voice of the shepherd and follow him. Question. Amen. What if someone starts to follow Jesus and then stops following Jesus. They are no longer following Jesus. Are they one of his sheep? By his definition. He says, my sheep follow me. If someone's not following him anymore, are they one of his sheep? I think Jesus has answered the question. Jesus defines the sheep. The sheep are the ones who follow me. If you're not following Jesus, you're not one of his sheep. Maybe you were one of his sheep a while ago. But that's the definition. The sheep, it's a journey. It's a process. It's not something you do for one second. It's a following. It's a course. It's a way of life that doesn't stop until you're dead or Jesus comes back. Only his sheep receive eternal life. Nobody else does. But the sheep are those who hear his voice and follow him. They're the ones that are protected. Amen. They're the ones who don't have to worry about the wolf or the bear or the lion. The enemy cannot snatch them out of his hands, the ones who follow him. Did Jesus teach perseverance that we have to continue following him all the way to the end anywhere else in scripture? Yes, he taught it all over the scripture. In Matthew 24, he says, he talks about the times that are going to come. He's talking to the apostles. He says, many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because of lawlessness will bound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. That's the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 24, verse 13. He who endures to the end will be saved. Well, Jesus, what happens if someone doesn't persevere to the end? Well, it's obvious. It's a conditional statement. He who endures to the end will be saved. The one who doesn't endure to the end is not going to be saved. That's the whole point of what he's saying. In Luke 9.62, Jesus says, No one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. You can't well, if you put your hand in the plow, you've got to keep plowing until, until the job is done. In the parable of the sower in Luke 8, 
Jesus explains in, in Luke 8, starting in verse 11, he says, The parable is this, the seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear. And the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. But the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation, they fall away. Can a Christian fall away? According to Jesus, yes. In time of temptation, they fall away. What's the difference between the second soil and the first soil? The first soil never believes to be saved. The second soil does believe, but it doesn't persevere. That's the problem. It's not like the first soil that never became a Christian. These are people who became Christians and didn't persevere to the end. The second soil, as opposed to the fourth soil, those are the ones who do persevere to the end. In the parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18, Jesus explains. He tells a story about someone who all of his debts are forgiven. But then after all his debts are forgiven, he refuses to extend the same mercy to someone else. And then the master hears about it. And that, uh, that, that person, that servant, all of whose debts have been forgiven, he turns him over. To, he's angry and he turns him over to the torturers. He throws him back in prison and hands him over to the torturers. So what does that tell us? If we are not persevering in the faith, if we're not following Jesus and forgiving others as we have been forgiven, our sins will not be, will not be given up. Hebrews chapter 10 it talks about the same thing in, 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 in great detail. That, uh, that uh, Hebrews 10, 26, let's turn there. This is written to Christians. It says, if we willfully sin, after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who rejected Moses' law died without mercy on the testimony of two, two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, a common thing, and insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him, he, him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, said the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Amen to that. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 20-22. to 22, Peter says, if, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than, to, than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But as happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. So, clear, absolutely clear. Jesus, Peter, and Paul taught that we must persevere to the end. 
And, and that's, that's contained even in the story here where it says, I know my sheep, my sheep follow me. They're the ones, the ones who follow him and continue following him to the end. They're the only ones that are going to be saved. Now, does this mean that we have no security at all in our salvation? Well, no, we do. Jesus is trying to say, no, if you follow me, the, my sheep, the ones who follow me, they can be secure. No one can snatch them out of my hands. Satan can't pry them out. It's not going to happen. If we follow the good shepherd to the end, no one can snatch us out of his, out of his hands. So we should have a feeling of security, but we also need to be sober-minded about the fact that if we stop following Jesus, the guarantee is, the guarantee is off. We, we, have, uh, we have voided the promise that he's given us. If we remain his sheep, hear his voice, and follow him, we can be assured. If we do that, we can be assured that we'll be saved in the last day. And I'm going to quote, close with a quote, one of my favorite passages from the Old Testament. This is from uh, 2 Chronicles 15, verses 1 and 2. Because it's a principle that is always true. The Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded, and he went out to meet Asa, was a king of Judah, and said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. So uh, this, is, this, is the, this has always been the heart of God. It's the same thing in the Old Testament. It's the same thing in the New Testament. God loves us. If we seek Him, we will be in a protected relationship with Him if we follow Him. But if we forsake Him, He will forsake us. That hasn't changed. The character of God has not changed. So just uh, uh, may we all, especially the brothers among us, seek to have the heart of a real good shepherd. And all that that entails, the church needs good shepherds who are looking out for the flock and are concerned about the wolves and are more concerned about pleasing the chief shepherd and taking care of the sheep than, than being buddy-buddy with the other shepherds. And, uh, and let's understand the real meaning of this promise of Jesus that his sheep will have eternal life and no one can snatch them out of his hands, remembering that his sheep are those who follow him. Amen.